Hello, welcome back. So it is now August 2nd. I suppose I'm one day late on uh, recording this and uh, releasing it as far as my, my initial plan. I was thinking about some things I wanted to talk about the past couple days and I had a lot of different topics and I like to try to maybe nail down a few things and at least write myself a list of some things that I want to cover. Um, and I guess that's my excuse for the delay in this month's, uh, podcast, but, um, yeah, I hope, I hope you're doing well, wherever you are, whatever you're doing. Um, I am sitting here in my home music studio slash practice space, uh, slash renovated garage. And, uh, it's pretty nice. It's nice. It's a nice sunny day. It's going to be very hot and humid. I think the high is 91 degrees and I just came from the house. So I have to walk outside a little bit to get out here and it's already incredibly humid. But the nice thing about this room, and I'm trying to get my voice warmed up. I haven't actually spoken at all today yet and it's what time is it it's almost 11 a.m so i'm getting my my get these vocal cords moving um one of the nice things about this space is that there's this gigantic tree uh behind where i am here so in the morning when the sun is coming up i'm underneath mostly shade so the room stays pretty cool and I don't need to worry about turning on the AC um, for a while until like, unless it's on like a really hot day where it gets above 85 degrees, I can actually a lot of times not even t- turn the AC on and it gets obviously gets warm like in the late afternoon by like 4 p.m. It'll get, it'll start to get like above 80 degrees in here if the the temperature outside is hotter but otherwise i can kind of get by and if it's not humid i can open the windows too if it's humid i usually avoid opening the windows because that'll actually like mess up my saxophone i'll get like really rusted um springs and i can get a lot of issues with that so if it's really humid i actually try to leave my horn inside where we've always got the AC going on but yeah so as as it is right now it's actually pretty nice out here I think my favorite time though is like definitely spring or fall where I can just have my windows open like all the time and uh, sometimes even get like a nice breeze back here and not worry about like a humming AC uh, machine going on but I guess now we're kind of uh, past that peak of summer. or Maybe we're right in the peak. But I'm already starting to think about a lot of the things for the fall and uh, just dealing with a lot of scheduling things with like gigs and uh, teaching things and some travel Um I was actually supposed to go to North Carolina for f- four days 
this coming weekend, but I've just found out we can't go because somebody we're, we were going to visit has COVID, unfortunately. So, which is too bad because they live like right on the beach and is going to be a really fun hang. But we'll probably just delay that until, I don't know, maybe early fall or something. So I'm sure it'll still happen at some point. Um, but yeah, I've been doing a lot of playing. Um, I think I probably mentioned in the last episode about some of the July gigs that I had coming up. July was pretty packed. It was, I probably had almost 20 gigs in July. And a lot of that has to do with the surplus of outdoor performances and music series and everything that happens all the time during the summer. Um, but just thinking back, there was one, I, I think I mentioned playing at the Taggart uh, Memorial Amphitheater here in Indianapolis. It's on the, uh, the west side of the city in, the, in Riverside Park, and it's this really nice amphitheater that was actually renovated or essentially built um, last year or finished up last year and it was um, supported by this grant that Eli Lilly gave to the city of Indianapolis for cultural um, support um, to help build up the cultural infrastructure and this amphitheater is awesome. I absolutely love it. And it's great. They're doing performances, I think, like every Thursday for like maybe four months or maybe five months. Um, maybe it's May through September. So that would be five months. Um, and, yeah, I really hope that I can just play there more in the future because that place is really nice the stage is awesome it's really just like a beautiful um, spot and of course when we played it was 90 degrees <laughs> I was hoping we would look out and it would be a cool day but um, man I mean you know we were getting all those like 90 degrees and even 100 de degree days even back in June and July <clears throat> And I know some people, I friends of mine were playing there and they were dealing with like 100 degree <laughs> days. So I, I guess it could have been worse. But the way they've got it set up, the stage faces the west. So when you're playing on stage, you're getting the sun directly on you, which I actually think is probably the, the best way to do it. Because now the, the one thing that I would change is I would just make the concert start later make it start like half an hour before sunset starts so that you're just catching the tail end of the sun. Then you get the cool, you know, the change of hues when the sun is setting. And then when it starts getting dark, they can just turn on the lights and then you're finishing the concert in when it's darker, but that you've got lights so you can, you know, the audience can still see. But the way they were doing it, I think we started it maybe 7 p.m. So, of course, the sun is still up until like 9 p.m. So we're in full sun for the whole concert, and it's super hot. 
no. I know that, you know, especially in like Indianapolis where there's, I can't say there's no nightlife here, but there's minimal nightlife compared to bigger cities in the country. Um, and typically the culture here is like, I'm not staying out past 10 o'clock, maybe even nine o'clock for a lot of people. Um, which is fine. I mean, it's not, I don't, I don't know if like you're really getting the best, um, of people after 10 PM anyway, <laughs> you know, so obviously you've got night owls and people want to, some people just naturally want to stay out late and hang late. And, but I think that's not the norm or that's a, there's a below average amount of people that would do that as opposed to wanting to go to bed early and wake up early. But if you just started concerts at like 8 PM, you know, I guess part of it too is that people think about kids and they don't want kids staying up. If the kid has a bedtime and you, and you keep them up past that, it can like really screw up their, <laughs> their schedule and their sleep cycle. I can, I can see that. So if you know a concert's ending by 8.30, you, can, you know you're home at 9, and that may be more of a draw for people. But if you start concert, like especially outdoor concerts at like 8 p.m., you know you're done at 9.30, you can be home by 10. I don't think that's unreasonable. And that would be more comfortable for everyone. You're in less direct sun. It's going to be cooler. Plus you get that cool shift of like you're starting in daylight and then it shifts to night and it's just like I think that's kind of like a cooler uh sort of vibe um but I don't know maybe there are other factors I'm not considering but it's just kind of weird I guess to start a concert at 7 p.m in the middle of summer when it's 80 or 90 degrees in full sun and you're ending the concert also in full sun even if you're in the audience and say you get a spot in the shade, you're still miserable <laughs> sitting out there. Like why, why unnecessarily do that? Like, you know, there's no reason, maybe there's some rule where the parks have to sh shut down by 8 p.m. or something, I don't know. You know, I would love to know the reason for that. But from my side of it, as the band leader in a situation like that, I think everybody would be better off if we just bumped the start times a little bit later. But anyway, it was a good concert. And if that one was with my sextet, it was all the original people except for the keyboardist. We had a sub on keyboard and it was cool though. It went well. Um, I brought my camera. I was going to record the whole thing and have video so I could share clips. I set up my camera right beforehand and my battery was at 1% and I had it plugged in at home. So for some reason it didn't get charged. So I need to be more careful with that because I want to have good video and audio of all these performances going forward just to, for multiple reasons for listening back, um, to my, music, critiquing things, being able to use things as demos. Um, it's just useful in a lot of different ways. So that's just, I was really frustrated with that. I got to like really 
just make sure I spend time a few days before, make sure all the gear is ready. Cause typically I'm just so focused on like, all right, am I good on my music? Am I, have I given all the details to the band? Um, have I been in touch with the people running sound about our stage setup? All those like necessary things, you know, having video is not necessary, but it's very helpful later on for doing lots of other things. So I want to, and you know, we, I don't really get to perform as a band leader a ton. I mean, I, I'm getting to do maybe three or four things a month at this point pretty regularly, but that's not like, uh, it's not like I'm Joe Lovano on tour where he can, you know, play months every night if he wanted to, um, at different venues and ha would have tons of opportunity to get footage. Not that he's someone that's like using video footage like, he's not really doing that sort of thing, but, um, that is something that I've found to be very useful and helpful. Um, and so, yeah, I just want to make sure I'm like getting that stuff and it's really valuable. And also just, um, cause there are times it's like, you, you never really know how a set is going to go. Even if like music is well rehearsed or if you feel like it's under rehearsed, sometimes the stars just align and the, band, whatever band you're playing with just has like a really incredible set or maybe even just one song just really stood out. Sometimes it's just like the alchemy of the situation just is for whatever reason just happens to be perfect. And I would like to capture that stuff, um, for, you know, to just to have and to share with the band members if they ever want to use it. But I can definitely use that stuff in a lot of different ways, especially when I'm trying to book new venues and have demos to send to people. And if I need subs to come into the band, have really good demos to share with them, you know, all of those reasons. Um, but back to the amphitheater, I mean, it was really cool because the sound system was great. The sound on stage was really good, um, which is always one of the things that's a little can be a little precarious, but it was, it was great. It was a really cool experience. And we actually had a decent crowd come out considering it was 90 degrees and some young musicians too, some underage people that typically can't come to gigs were coming out, which is always awesome. Um, and props to them, those people that I see coming out to shows, um, are, doing the right thing. And I, I don't want to harp on this topic because I feel like I'm, I'm always talking about this. Um, but that's one of the things, uh, that it's all about, especially if you're like a younger musician wanting to do this later on, or, you know, just down the road, you're working towards being a plain, like a regularly performing musician. Um, I know there are a lot of them out there that I just never see show up to things. And a, a lot of it early on does have to do with like the age thing. Like you can't get into certain venues, but the ones that I see being really proactive and seeking out the, any opportunity they have, um, when they're underage, cause there are gigs that they can come to 
um, when they're underage. And then when, when they finally do turn 21 to actually just start going to, you know, go to everything else that they weren't able to go to for a really long time. The, those people that I see being proactive with that are the ones that end up actually <clears throat> like in the fabric of the music scene, wherever they are living. But then there are a lot of people, well, a lot of students that I'll interact with um, on a lot of different levels, whether it's at a camp or in a teaching situation in either a high school or a college or private lessons, or they just bump into me and introduce themselves, or maybe they come to like one gig. A lot of musicians that I will know about early on at some point, and then I'll never hear from them again. And now that's not to say that they um, failed at the thing that they wanted to do or weren't able to do it, because a lot of them did make the choice where they're like, oh, I don't really want to pursue music. I want to go uh, be a chef or a teacher. I want to go into the army or, you know, obviously there are a lot of other paths that they can diverge to. But a lot of times it's um, the, there's a lot of really talented young musicians who, man, they could be like a prominent gigging musician in like five years if they just learn the things that all their teachers told them to learn and then were proactive as far as like going out and meeting the musicians that were doing the thing that they wanted to do. And a lot of times when it when it isn't just given to them and their phone just doesn't start ringing and they just, you know, they don't just get like a full calendar of gigs, then they just sort of say like, oh, I guess th- this isn't really happening and I'm just going to, I'm just going to go do this other thing. Now that could, that's their choice. Obviously they could, that's fine. Um, and it could just be that they have a stronger desire to do this other thing. But I think with a lot of them too, they get frustrated um, about things not falling in their lap. And so then they just sort of like shun the music world and say, oh, I'm just gonna forget all these people. Like they're just ignoring me. I'm just gonna go do this other thing. That's a big mistake because, you know, when you're younger, everybody's really green. It's hard to have any of the wisdom that would actually be very helpful at that time. But if you go ask, what you want to do is ask older people. Now, not everyone is going to happily give you answers for your questions. But if you are um, genuinely trying to learn and it comes off that way, and you're not just trying to like suck up or make people learn about you or you know, let them know how good you are, that sort of thing, then older people, I think for the most part, are going to be happy with sharing uh, their knowledge and experiences. And yeah, I mean, I think, you know, that's one side note for all of you young musicians, like don't just sit back and say, oh yeah, this just happened. I see this just happening for these musicians. And so I'm going to just expect all this to happen for me. I think one great rule of thumb is just like, 
you have to be proactive, especially when it comes to playing, I guess, the type of music that I'm doing where it's like, uh, well, part of it is like being a freelancer. Part of it is being a band leader. But the underlying current is that it's all in like the creative music realm. It's like I don't have a gig with an orchestra or a military band or um, like a regularly touring pop band, for example, or any sort of gig where there's long-term stability. Um, I think, you know, the things that I'm doing now are more about either like the connections I have with current bands and musicians where it's like um, these bands are booking things and I'm not the band leader, but I'm going to do the things that they have or that they offer to me. Or it's things that I'm going out and booking for myself and I'm really searching and trying to find things. I was just checking out, if you're not familiar with um, Yannick Guizdala, or maybe it's Yannick. I think he says Yannick, actually. He's an incredible electric bass player. He has a really cool YouTube channel where um, he does a variety of things, but one of the things he's been doing is talking about an upcoming tour that he booked for himself. And I think he's talked about it some in his YouTube videos. And I also found that he has a podcast where he, he's been talking specifically about some of these things. Um, and he's probably one of the top electric bass players in the world. Now he may not be one of the most famous. Um, he's not quite on the level of like Marcus Miller, but of course nobody is, but I think he, if he continues to do what he's doing, he, he will be. Um, but now he's, you know, he's, um, booking little tours as a band leader and he just recorded a trio album and actually he's talking about how he released the trio album, which is really interesting. He's doing like, he's a very entrepreneurial minded person where what he's doing with his album is really cool. And, and even doing some things that I've haven't heard any other musicians doing before it. I really like learning about this stuff because I want, I like having all these ideas because I think they're all going to be useful for things that I want to do down the road. But as far as like the tour stuff that he's talking about, he um, was attempting to book a tour in, in Europe. And I don't know exactly like what his parameters were as far as he had a goal of certain number of shows he wanted to do or, or something like that but he ended up booking five different shows um and I, I believe he's got a couple in England he's got uh he's got one in Helsinki I'm trying to remember exactly but he said to book those five sh- those five venues he contacted 100 venues or clubs or potential places to play 100 and he was able to book five just that alone and he's a well-known he's like he's already toured with like a lot of different people he played he's played with like mike stern randy brecker 
Um, he was talking about for a while he was in the opening band for Maroon 5 back when they were like really big. Um, you know, he's like in that sort of like maybe not the upper tier in terms of like touring musician, but as far as like what he's doing as a band leader and playing like instrumental music, not he's not doing like pop, but it's more like kind of fusion so, you know, he's not playing stadiums. He's he's doing more like clubs and um, I guess maybe you'd call it mid to small sized venues. You know, he's he's one of the bigger names for, for doing that sort of thing. Um, and yeah, that's what his success rate was <laughs> for trying to book this. And he was talking about, he's like, man, yeah, he's like, I'm really glad I got five because if it was like two or three, he's like, I don't know if I could justify flying over to Europe. I, I think he lives in LA to go do like two or three shows and just come back. So he's he was excited about five. And also one of the um, other really interesting things where he's kind of pulling back the curtain on, you know, uh, details for doing tours like this for yourself was that he was saying, uh, well, I think four out of the five are selling tickets directly through the venue themselves, like the typical way, like you would go to the venue's website and you would buy a ticket to his show and you would go. For one of the venues, he is actually renting out a space on his own and then selling tickets through his website. So there's no middleman, there's no promoter, um, manager or anything like that that would take a percentage of his ticket sales. So he's just, in a way, he's sort of gambling where he's got to, you know, plunk down this chunk of change first to have the venue. But then he sets his ticket prices, I think, and, and he's getting 100% of the sales back on those for everything that he sells, which is, um, you know, a really really cool thing to think about as far as in this day and age, you you know, you can have a following and he was actually talking about this as well, where he was with certain venues he would, um, that he really wanted to play. I don't know if it was this round or in a, like a past tour. He was, he would ask, I think maybe it was like on his YouTube, he would ask his following there. He was like, Hey, you know, if you live in this specific city, um, if you want to come see me, what I need you to do is email the, I guess, maybe club owner of this specific club in this city. And what he said was that a lot of people did that. And <laughs> it was kind of unfortunate because I guess the club owner gave a lot of negative responses as far as like, we don't need you to tell us who to bring in, that sort of thing. Um, which is kind of crazy because if, you know, what he was saying is like, say I had like 75 people email this club, that's 75 guaranteed tickets that they would sell for a set. Um, and then you're just building off of that. That's just like one pass at it too. That's like not even advertising the gig really to anybody else besides his specific YouTube following. But even at that point, the club was like, no, we're not doing this, which is kind of 
surprising and a little sad. I guess I don't fully understand why a club would do that. And that's one of the things that Yannick was saying. It's like, well, this this makes no sense. Like I'm literally bringing the audience right to you. And it even may be people that have never even been to that specific club. Maybe if they just live within driving distance and they're like, I, I really love Yannick. I love his music. I'm going to come to this club. And I've never even been there. But it's just because I've been in touch with him through his YouTube channel that I'm going to go and, and make this work. But I think, you know, I would imagine uh, the tide would be maybe turning on that because it just seems like uh, it seems like a very uh, mutually beneficial uh, system. Like, obviously, if you're a some type of artist and you're sharing things online and you build up a following, ideally, you can take that following wherever or at least when you go somewhere, you're going to have people that want to come connect with you or come hear you or whatever it is. And you you have a lot of control that way and a lot of, I don't want to say power necessarily, but just like a lot of support. And that's that has to be beneficial for like wherever you want to go, especially if you're a musician trying to book other spots. Um you know, one thing that I did uh, the last time I played at, at the Jazz Kitchen here in Indianapolis is I had these little postcards with a QR code and it just said, hey, you know, thanks for coming. And if you would like to receive a free unreleased recording, just scan this QR code. And so what it would do is it, you would scan it. It would take the person to uh, this landing page, which is something that's just used by like a, I don't know if that's just a generic term for getting like a customer or quote unquote customer to a certain page. But this landing page would say, hey, um, it would just say thank you. And then it said, um, tell me where to send this recording. And then there's a little box where you put your email address in and then you just hit submit. And then it's set up through my MailChimp so that that person would uh, automatically get the email with the recording. So I don't even have to do anything at, you know, after the flyers made, I'm just handing those out and I'm, and I'm, I have nothing else. I'm, I'm hands off. <laughs> so, and it actually worked. I had people go through it, scan the code, put their email in, and then they're automatically added to this email list that I've created in my MailChimp account. I think it's just called fans. So this list is people, and I don't know, I'm sort of debating about, because I played a gig out of town, I didn't hand these out because I was worried that most of my gigs are closer to Indianapolis. So I was thinking if you're out of there, out or not living sort of within Indy, that maybe you wouldn't want to be on this list. I'm not sure about that. I, I maybe change that. But... What I did then was, okay, when I had this this next gig coming up at the Taggart Amphitheater, I think that, that week I sent out an, an email to that fan list. I said, hey, you're on this list because you came and saw me at this one show and I wanted to let you know I've got this other thing coming up. And this was, you know, uh, a couple months later. So it's like, all right. 
it's not like the, the next week I'm spamming you saying, oh, I've got these three dates this week, you know. I want it to feel like something where I'm really offering uh, something that somebody really wants. Like I definitely don't want it to feel spammy ever. Uh, one, like that turns people off, but also it's like, it's not really my goal to just have like thousands of people on this list and most of them are uninterested. What I would rather have is like a smaller following of people that are truly into it and are really excited to maybe get that one email about an upcoming gig every couple months or how, however often or frequently I, I choose to do it. So probably what I'll do now is, um, wait, I've got another gig coming up at the end of this month with my sextet and I'll send another email, uh, probably that week, just as like a, a little reminder. And then also for, for that gig, I'll also hand out flyers for all the new people that maybe want to join that list. And then I was, you know, thinking about maybe once a month, sort of like picking a particular gig and just highlighting that one and, you know, doing a Facebook invite, but then also sending out the email to this specific list so that I'm sort of building up a, a local following where people can actually come hear music. And then what I would love to do is, <clears throat> like I uh, did uh, also at the end of last month, playing up in South Bend at Merriman's Playhouse, I would love to find more places like that that are driving distance outside of Indianapolis and start playing in those venues and start building up a little bit of a rapport where I could maybe hopefully like go play Merriman's every six months to a year or something like that and just build around that and, and build up more like regular venues that I can go to um, and then continue to build up my list that way. That's where it gets a little trickier because it's like, well, let's say I'm going to like, for example, Cincinnati, Louisville, St. Louis, Chicago, let's just say those places. In the beginning, I may only be able to go to each of those places like once a year and it would be hard to have like multiple email lists for each city. That might might get a bit tedious. That seems like a little bit beyond uh, what I'm willing to do. Then maybe that's, I don't know, it's hard to know like if that would actually be be worth the time I would put in. That's that's the sort of thing where I, I really wish I could just have like some sort of manager or assistant that could deal with that level of admin work because there's plenty of admin work that I need to do even if I'm just booking a gig for myself, hiring musicians, sending the music, figuring out rehearsal, figuring out transportation, dealing with sound check, all of that is plenty. Then when I'm dealing with a whole other extra layer, then it gets to be like, okay, I don't even really care at this point. It's just like, I just am worried about, I just want the music to be good. Um, all right, I think my, uh, neighbor is having their lawn mode. I'm going to take a, a little break. Not that you'll notice because I'm just going to hit pause and I'll be right back. 
All right, we are back. So, yeah, I was talking about the gig at the amphitheater. The next day, um, we drove up and did the gig in northern Indiana in South Bend at Merriman's Playhouse. And this was my second time playing there. I played there, oh, was it last year? Or, yeah, not too long ago with a different band. And I was like, man, I really love this room. I really want to, like, try to play here sometime. Um, and so I was able to book something. They book pretty far out in advance as well. And I think I was in touch with them, like, last fall and then also in, like, January. And we ended up... Uh, booking uh, July 1st sometime back in January <laughs> for one gig so really far out and I was a little worried that um, maybe I wouldn't have a good turnout just because I mean obviously when I'm playing in and around Indianapolis I have pretty good odds that there's going to be people that I personally know that will show up um, but luckily I have some connections to the South Bend area. So I did, was able to get a few people that I personally knew that showed up, which is awesome. And then also there was just a, a decent crowd in general. And I was glad because when I played there with the other band, it was super light and, you know, partially it was closer to... Um, more of the peak of COVID, I think, or, you know, not that much further um, after one, like one of the spikes. So I'm sure that was like part of the issue too. But I was really glad. I mean, it wasn't like sold out, but it was a good turnout. And we got up there and we had planned on doing a little sound check before. And we were doing the sound check, and the bass amp was having issues. So we we're like, "Oh, okay. Can we try?" They had a they had a house bass amp, so we tried that one. And um, our our bass player was like, "Man, I think it's uh, something to do with my pickup because we were having issues with both amps." So then he was just sort of playing without the amp. He's like, well, "What do you think about the sound just with no amp?" And I was like actually yeah I think this will work because it's not a huge room and we're just playing trio it was just myself guitar and bass so no drums and so we ended up just doing the gig with no bass amp and of course guitar is electric so he's got his amp and I'm just playing acoustic no microphone and it was a great gig and part of it was that the crowd was very attentive they were just quiet and listening very intently. Um, that's one of the things that allowed it to work really well. You know, if you're playing in a room where it can get louder and maybe the crowd is like a little more talkative, it's really difficult to do something like that without a bass amp. Um, but it was really great. They were really listening. They were Everybody was like clapping after every solo and it was really cool and um 
Yeah, I mean, I'm really glad that I booked that. And, you know, that's always one of those things where it's like, well, of course I want to play with these good players. But if I'm, like, asking them to drive at least four hours round trip out of the city on a Friday night when they could most likely just have a gig in town, you know, I want it to be worth it financially, but I also want it to be a really good experience for them. And luckily, I mean, it, it, I think it did turn out that way. And that's great because, you know, I'm glad these guys are my, these musicians are my friends and I want them to be happy with the situation. But I also want it to be a thing where it's like, the next time I try to do this, they're willing to say yes. Like, yeah, I'm happy to go out for this. Even though, you know, the money typically is like a guaranteed amount plus um, uh, like a certain percentage of ticket sales. So the guys basically know like what they're getting. They don't always know, like that's, that's not the only factor that they take into consideration when they're thinking about accepting a gig. It's like, well, am I playing in a loud, raucous bar where it's not going to be a fun experience? Even if I'm getting paid more, do I really want to make this extra drive? Because ultimately I'm spending more time maybe with just the commute than on some gig I could do in town that might pay a little bit less. You know, all those little details are important. And these are things that are, you know, worth thinking about when you're trying to actually like book gigs and be a band leader. But also like if you're being a sideman, be considerate of these factors that your band leader is, is thinking about. Um, and yeah, I mean, actually, I think this is sort of like a, maybe a good rule of thumb where it's like, if you are doing uh, side person gigs and you've never been a band leader, it's really hard to know all of the things that the band leader actually has to deal with. Um, and it, I would almost say every person should try to be a band leader for a certain period of time, even if you don't want to do that long term. Just take like maybe six months to a year and just try to see how well you can do or not even like with a specific goal in mind. Just just do it. Just say like, all right, I'm going to book, try to book X amount of gigs and I'm going to try to do X amount in new venues that I've never played and a certain amount um, outside of where I live. Just try to stretch yourself. And you may find that, oh, actually, I really love this because of the control I get as far as like picking my bandmates and picking the music and picking the places I play and my a little bit of my own schedule. Or you might say, I hate this. I hate this responsibility. I don't even care about any of that extra stuff. I just want to show up and get paid to play my instrument. And I don't really care what the music is or other things like that. Um, if you just try to go through that experience you, I think it'll make you a better musician overall and it'll make you a better sideman to work with because you're going to then have that perspective of saying, oh, well, we weren't able to do sound check or the amp got messed up or nobody showed up to listen to us or X, you know, X, Y, Z, like 
tons of other factors um, that are a lot of times out of your control. And I think actually for myself, when I think about, um, and I know I've talked a lot about this on other podcast episodes, but when I was in my 20s and I was doing the tours with the pit orchestras, it was, you know, there were always things coming up, like, and a lot of it had to do with travel, you know, all sorts of different travel delays or the bus would get somewhere, get to a city late and we didn't have time to go to the hotel. We'd have to go straight to soundcheck. There were all, every, it seemed like almost every other day, if not every week, um, there were different issues that would arise that were negative. (laughs) Very rarely was it like, oh, we're just going to throw in this extra off day and you guys can just go hang at the pool. Like that doesn't happen. It's always something where it's like we get less free time or we have to leave earlier than we thought or we're going to be more uncomfortable because you don't get to go shower, change clothes when you thought you were going to or you don't have, you don't even get like 30 minutes to have lunch. You have to go just grab McDonald's or any sort of little thing like that where if you compile that day after day, it's just like, oh my gosh, like, is this worth it? <laughs> but um, I think going through that and then just coming and working primarily in one specific city um, just gave me so much perspective. And now it's like, it's kind of funny where, you know, I'll see musicians reacting to certain things that, you know, they're not happy about, or like maybe there's a change in an itinerary for a gig or some little detail is thrown at them at the last minute. And I think because of what I went through with all of the, the touring things, it's like, okay, fine. It's like really not a big deal at all. And it's easier for me to just sort of like let things roll off my back. Whereas I'll see musicians kind of freak out about little things. And to me, it's kind of funny. It's like, well, you drove 20 minutes to get to this gig and this is what you're worried about. (laughs) Like, it's just funny how without having certain perspectives, it's really hard to just get into like a a sort of like relaxed, uh, grateful mindset um, and be able to sort of just like go with the flow. Um, So yeah, I think, you know, maybe sort of seeking out those things where you might be uncomfortable or things might get messed up are actually just trying to, you know, take take some gigs where you don't really have control or you're not you're not even sure that you would like it. Like I would definitely uh, recommend that young musicians just go do the cruise ship thing for a while. Um, maybe just take like a year and go do it. N- not because you think you would you will like like it as a mus- musical experience overall 
but because it will give you perspective on what the real world is like. You know, so many, again, this kind of goes back to what I was just talking about a little bit ago, but like I see so many college students who are just like, they're doing their college things. And then as soon as they're out, they get a taste of like what gigging in the real world is like. And they kind of are just like so turned off that they don't even really pursue the thing that they loved in the first place, which is music because of all the roadblocks of gigging in the real world. Whereas like if you're in school, it's like, oh, you work on this music for like four months and then you do a concert and then you work on other music for three months and do a concert. And then, oh, you write this one one chart in like six months or one arrangement in like a semester. And everybody, of course, waits and starts working on it three days before. And then they wonder why, oh, this, oh my God, I'm so stressed out. It's like, you don't know what you, <laughs> what the real world is like. Part of my goal as a professor, and I think about this and I've said it, I think I, I don't know, this came up in one of the classes last year. Um, one of my jobs I feel like is to do my best to actually prepare you for the real world, not to make you succeed in this bubble. Like, great, so you got an A in my class. I don't really care about that. Are you ready for what it's like to actually be a working musician in the world as it is now? Um, and to be honest, that's something that I see with a lot of professors where, where they haven't even really lived in that world. A lot of professors have just stayed in school and they don't really know. They think they, they may know because they do a little bit of freelancing, but for anyone again, who's never been a full-time freelancer or a full-time musician, even if you've had like a steady gig, and you're teaching people, especially at the college level, um, that want to be musicians, you're, it's really hard for you to know what's best for them. And that's definitely something that's a struggle for, uh, for the college scene because, man, a lot of people are not really getting what they need. I think in a lot of places it's getting better. Um, but a lot of what I've seen is like, man, people are graduating and do not even really have the basics of a lot of things that they need to be able to do what they want to do. And I could get more into detail with that if, if anybody wants me to, I mean, I'm happy to, but, um, I guess that reminds me if you have a specific question, comment, or concern that you would like to leave with me. You can email me at saxophonejournal at gmail.com and I will read it. And then if I like it, I will even bring it up here on this podcast and maybe answer a question on here. Um, But I'm happy to engage with any topics that any listeners are thinking about. But that's one of the things it's like, you know, having that awareness of do I live in some kind of bubble And if so, how can I break out of it? And it's going to be a little uncomfortable. Um, But yeah, it's just funny. I mean, I, I, I remember when I was just like 
riding the bus for days on end and thinking to myself like, man, I can't wait to be able to like play creative music and uh, actually be involved with playing with musicians that are sort of like thinking about things the way that I am and striving to do something new and interesting. Um, and I was kind of like, I know it's going to be harder and it's not like when I'm on tour, it's like I, ha- I would have six months of dates laid out for me and I would know exactly what city I was going to. And it's like, okay, that's cool. And I would also have like a set salary, but that was the only really good side. Well, not the only, I mean, I got to meet cool people. I got to go to some cool places, but the main thing that I was interested in, the actual music was the worst thing about it. (laughs) So it was like all these other side things that were kind of good about it or cool. It was like, it kind of masked you from, but we have to go play the show now. The the music is so lame (laughs) and we've done it 89 times. Um, I, I just remember during that time, just thinking ahead of the future and sort of daydream about like, oh man, one day I'll be able to like lead a quartet. I'll like be able to just work towards like being creative and, you know, um, essentially just following my gut. And, um, so now getting to do that, it's like, oh man, it's, I have, I've had so many fulfilling experiences and I feel really lucky and grateful for that. But then at the same time, I'll see musicians who I also feel like are having fulfilling experiences, um, but they can't get over little things about uh, certain things that are just, I guess, annoying or little, like I, like I was saying about like, um, little things that might get messed up with a gig, but it doesn't, uh, it doesn't take away from the music. Like the music is still great, but it's just little things like, Oh, I thought we were like supposed to get dinner before this gig, or I thought we were supposed to get paid this much, or I thought we were doing sound check, or I thought I was getting a parking pass and people will, they will focus on those really minor things when you it's like man but you've had this opportunity to like do exactly what you wanted play the music you want you maybe even read the music and you handpicked the band and like all of this stuff is amazing um and i'm just thinking in my back in the back of my head like man i used to ride on a cramped bus for like eight hours every single day to go play music I didn't want to do now it's like man if there's like a little inconvenience it's like yeah it's like fine like so our set got moved two hours later like I don't I don't care like I'm (laughs) as long as I get to do the core main thing which is play the music that I want and with people I want and have creative input um in the whole thing then I'm golden like that's the the thing um 
And so, yeah, I think perspective has a lot to do with that. And, and again, it's like being in school. I think one of the things we, we want to avoid, if you're a student or a teacher, no matter which side of this coin that you're on, you don't want it to make it seem like the school world is the real world. You want to do as much as you can to make the students feel what it's like to be a working musician and to feel um, not to intentionally make them feel bad, but just to, to give them awareness of their shortcomings and as early as they can and just be as straight and direct with, with them as they can. You know, I think about like if I, if I'm planning a, a like a university class or like my syllabus or curriculum or if I'm planning assignments or whatever it is, um, you know, it's like music is a fun, enjoyable thing. That's part of the reason why a lot of us get into it. We enjoy it. It's fun. Makes us feel good. It's we like playing instruments. We like being in bands. You know, there's this long list of positive things, right? So I think sometimes then when people go study it and they choose to study it, they're like, oh, I just want to keep this as like a fun, enjoyable thing. I don't want to make myself too uncomfortable or, you know, if I work too hard or I, I, if I'm trying to do too hard of an assignment, then it's, it's just not fun anymore. And music is supposed to be a fun thing. It's like, well, okay, yes, that is true. But once you're out of school, if it's just been fun and you haven't done the work that you need to do, you're not going to be prepared to actually compete and be able to play the gigs that you want to do. Like, for example, one thing that I think about a lot is like, okay, if somebody, say somebody goes into school to be a doctor and they go into med school and they're thinking, well, you know, for one thing, it's like, yeah, you might have an initial thing where like this idea of medicine and health and being a doctor, it seems really fun because I can help people. But that is a dead serious profession. It's like you in the middle of med school, you don't say, well, this is getting to be a little bit too much work. It's not as fun as I thought, or it's, it's not as fun memorizing every bone in the body. Like I thought this, this was supposed to be like a fun thing where it's like, I, I become a doctor and I help people. And it's like, yes, that's true. But you've got to know what you're doing or you've got to know, for example, like depending on exactly what kind of doctor you are, you got to know every organ in the body so that when somebody comes in, they say like, I have this pain here. Okay. What options are, are there where it's like, this is what's causing it. You got to know this stuff so that you can be good at your profession. Just like if you are training to play a certain type of music, you've got to know the repertoire. You have to know that stuff. So when you're out of school, it's like you're ready to do the job and do it really well and compete with all the other people that want to do it. That's something that I sort of think about. It's like, just because you're a music major doesn't mean you shouldn't be as serious as like a medical student or a law student or an an accountant. Um, you know, I think that's one of the things where it's like they think of like music as, it, oh yeah, it was a fun, it was the thing I liked most in high school, it was the most fun class. Um, yeah, that doesn't translate to 
you become a musician that people want to listen to and you know you can get a good crowd or other musicians want to hire you or you know whatever it is that you're trying to do um, I think that's sort of a useful thing it's like when you choose to do something out in the world you need to actually be good enough at it where people see that as a valuable thing and if you are sort of treating it as like a hobby where it's like you just want to maintain that feeling of fun and satisfaction and enjoyment you know maybe it's best that it is just a hobby versus like you know i don't want a medical student to only know uh 10 of the bones in the body if they're trying to like be a surgeon and they don't know all of the bones in my arm <laughs> but they were like well if I studied, if I overstudied, you know, it would take away from the enjoyment. So I'm, I'm just, I'm just going to do just, just dip my toe in a little bit. It's like, no, no, no. I don't want you to operate on me. <laughs> it's, it's a similar thing. It's like, no, I don't want to hear you play that song. If you haven't done the work, um, you know, so I think, I don't think many people really think about it like that. If I was a student, um, I would want my teachers to have a level of seriousness that a medical professor would have. But the problem is that most, I think a lot of students may get turned off by that. If, um, you know, I remember one time, a f this has been years ago now, but one of my university combos was supposed to learn the tune All of Me. And they came in and the next week, it's like they hadn't really done the work and they couldn't quite nailed the melody they didn't know the chord changes and I was like I was kind of like coming down on them a little bit getting a little frustrated and I remember one of the students said why are you mad <laughs> and that response right there just showed me oh right like this is like a hobby to you and again there's nothing wrong with that um and there's nothing wrong with like reading a couple of medical textbooks and just being curious about the human body. But I don't want you to be my doctor. Just like I, I don't want the person that didn't learn all of me to be my musician. Now, of course, it's not like a perfect analogy because it's not like there's there's a lot of differences there. But at the core of it, that's sort of the idea. It's like, I was frustrated because you didn't do this specific assignment. You're not on the path to attain the level that I know you're going to need to succeed in the real world of being a musician. And so that's why I'm frustrated. Now, I don't I think at that time I hadn't necessarily thought that concept through. So I was just a little bit like my response I'm sure was probably shorter and maybe I don't even know if I really even responded in a way that was useful to the student. But I was thinking like, it was one of those things where it's like, I was a little shocked where it's like, whoa. I mean, I, you know, it's you almost want to say like, well, why are you in school to learn this? You don't need school. If you're not even really going to do the assignments, why are you at a school? <laughs> Like what? That's a whole nother thing, which I guess 
we could get into at some point, but man, oh man, that's a serious issue that is hurting many people in our society. The, the, the basic idea that, oh, well, you need to go to school because that's the smartest thing to do. That concept alone is a big mistake. Um, now, there are, of course, that's uh, not to say that like it's not beneficial for many or even most people. But if you're in that mindset where you're just going through the motions and you're just like, especially with college, you're just like going to college. Uh, <coughs> excuse me. You're just going to college because that's what your parents <coughs> tell you to do and all your friends are doing it. And like, it seems like everybody's just on that path. That's what you're supposed to do. Um, and not really thinking much beyond that. That's where it gets to be an issue and it's hard because um for well for many reasons I, I don't even necessarily want to really get into it right now but one one of the big things is like parents are so into like oh I'm gonna I'm gonna send my kid to I don't know UCLA their kid goes to UCLA kid doesn't even know what they want to study they don't they haven't even really figured anything out they're just mainly doing this because their parents suggested it and they applied and they got in now the parents go around to all the other parents my johnny's at ucla (laughs) they're so proud and it gives them a little status bump because they can say that about their kid johnny on the other hand is over at ucla not doing a damn thing. <laughs> but the parents get to tell all their friends in their little social circle that he's there and, well, what's he studying at UCLA? <clears throat> UCLA. Well, he's it's an undefined major right now, but he's really into uh, political science and he's also he also has uh, interests in uh, maybe taking some architecture classes. Now, that may be true, uh, but it, the, at the, the point of it is that the parents get to go around saying, my kid is here. He's a sophomore at Duke University, or he's getting his master's here. Well, how much is that going to put Johnny in debt? <laughs> like, that should be the real thing. Like, um, <laughs> if you say... If you say to someone, yep, my kid just started his master's at Harvard, Harvard Business School. I feel like if you say that comment to someone in public, you should be required to then follow it up by saying, and he's going to be in debt for $350,000 or whatever it is. You know, we just, we get so blinded by this, like this name recognition of, uh, oh, this person's going to Jacob's School of Music or this person's going to the Berkeley College of Music or this person's going to Amsterdam to study with whoever. And, okay, like, great, you got to say that. Um, 
how much how much debt is this person going to get into? What is this person's plan? Does this person now of course this isn't like a cut and dry thing. There are situations where I think that that may be great for someone. But thinking about that issue, like even at the school where I teach adjunct here in Indy, and I'm not even gonna mention the name, just and I know some of you know it, but I just I'm not trying to just be negative. I'm trying to be realistic. I know students who graduated school, they're in so much debt that they're basically like, I'm not even going to try to pay it. I'm just going to live with it. And like hundreds of thousands of dollars of debt. How that even happens nowadays is like still mind blowing to me. Um, I think a lot of it has, well, I think all of it has to do with just lack of education about this specific topic. Either the parents don't know, the school counselors maybe don't know or don't care to um, share the information, but just thinking about how big of a problem this still is today is just like mind blowing to me. Um, I almost wish it almost makes you want to like be a high school counselor, not seriously, but like just for that reason alone, like explaining how debt works. And, you know, I got really lucky. Um, I don't have school loans. Um, um, I don't know if I've talked about that on here, but maybe I, I think I have actually, um, but it was initially a situation where like, I, I didn't know the facts about how this stuff worked. I got so lucky early on that I was able to avoid it down the road. Um, but even early on, you know, I had no financial literacy and I got just so lucky in general. And man, I, I mean, there should totally be a requirement. like speech class was required in school which okay fine like obviously we can all see the benefits of that but man what would be even way way more useful is a financial literacy class as a requirement for high schoolers explaining this as one of the key things in the class that's covered how debt works how to avoid it the pitfalls of it um, why just going to some name recognition place is not worth, not worth it. Uh, man, that's, that would be just like a freaking game changer for the system. If high schoolers were aware of the numbers game that they were getting into, because it's not real. Money is not real. When you're living at home with your parents, you don't have to buy a thing. You don't buy food anything you know the good parents are the ones that really like make their kids get a job and, and start to actually like teach them about how this stuff works but that's such a small number um wow yeah that's a topic that man i just yeah, yeah i'm almost passionate about it enough to like take it on myself and just find a way to like I don't know, 
maybe there could be like a course created or something where you know and i would even have a lot to learn about about that before i could even really teach it well but just to bring awareness and try to like help the system or help people avoid the system i guess too well that was that was a unexpected tangent um but that's the the joy of this unscripted unedited uh, un uh undecisive amount of time or length of these episodes so yeah whereas i leaving off with the actual music talk i guess doing doing the gig at merriman's and then uh last week we had a a really interesting gig at the indianapolis zoo and this was with the the tucker brothers we got the original tucker brothers quartet so myself joel tucker on guitar nick tucker on bass brian yard on drums it's always exciting now whenever we get the four of us together um, because we were playing every week for a while well for a few years and then um, Brian wasn't able to make the weekly thing so we've been like trying out different drummers and bringing in different players but we had the original quartet last week and it was funny like we were supposed to show up like at a certain time for load in and um and then we had like a certain time for sound check and everything. So I got there and they were we were told the instructions said don't go to the main gate, go to this other side gate or what was called the pavilion gate because we were playing at the pavilion. So I pulled my car up and it's essentially just this really tall chain link fence with like that covering over it so you can't see through it and it's this gate. It looks like it would open up for cars. And they said there would be somebody waiting there to let us in. And I pulled up. No, I don't see anybody around. So I'm just sort of standing there. And it looks kind of weird, at least to me. It looks like I'm standing, like casing out the joint. (laughs) But finally somebody, like a maintenance worker, walks by. I'm like, hey, is this the pavilion gate? And they look at me like kind of weird. They're like, "Um, I don't know. and I said, like, oh, I'm a musician. You know, I'm here for this concert. Can you help me get in? And they're like, oh, let me go get somebody else. And they they stop this other, like, person on a golf cart. They're like, hey, this person's trying to get in. And they come over like, what's going on? <laughs> like, hey, you know, and I explain the situation. And they're like, oh, I don't know if this is the pavilion gate. Let me go get somebody else. And they go get somebody and then they walk over and they're like, yeah, yeah, we can get this open for you. I'm like, oh, great, thank you. And I was like, I can pull my car in, right? And they're like, yeah, you can pull it in. And then and then I'm pulling in and they're like directing me, like go back this way. And I go back down this long road and I'm parked in this back area, definitely like behind the scenes where there, there isn't really anybody right there, but there's like some dumpsters and like some storage areas. And I see one of those big like ice, um, like popsicle stand machines back there that isn't in use and like some other things like that. And it's like, man, I'm back behind the scenes of the zoo right now. Nobody checked my, my ID. 
no, nobody looked at my parking pass. Nobody did anything. I just like, I'm back here. And it's like, man, the security here is light. Now that could be a thing where it's like, maybe I wasn't actually in an area that was, had any importance. That, that's, that'd be my guess. But I was like, man, I felt like on the other side of where I was, it could have been like a, an alligator tank or something where I, I could have just gotten in in the zoo not like in like the public area but like really in a like a either like an unsafe or just an area where I shouldn't have been but maybe they did know what they were they're really doing but anyway um yeah so I got back there got set up and man I know we had played at the zoo before but it was in a different area this like pavilion place is is awesome they have a stage they had this big seating area with tables they had this really cool overhang thing that gives you like shade and like the design is really cool sort of like back behind that is like a walkway where people were are actually just like walking about the zoo and so if they walk by they could see the stage and hear music and it was it was really great um we played and there was like a, a good crowd like a few hundred people i i hadn't played for a crowd that size in a while and it's always a little bit uh, maybe a little bit unnerving but mostly like exciting because it's like man got this great band we got people listening and i see like kids dancing around i always love that too because it's like man you know some of these kids may really remember this experience for a long time and it may you know it's never like oh I hope they become a musician it's more just like man they are getting to experience something that is I don't want to say necessarily rare but like most people I feel like don't even really hear live music on a regular basis anymore it's it's becoming a thing where it's like I think people forget what it's like to hear a live band like this. And that's one of the things I love. And it, it even happened after this concert, like m multiple people came back behind the stage to talk to us and just say like, man, that was so great. We loved it. And there was even a guy that came back that said like, man, I just started learning saxophone three months ago. You were, you were just like, awesome. I loved it. And I was, you know, saying like, man, thank you so much. Um, he was saying like he was into some particular players and asking me if he, if he had recommendations for other people. And he's like, I'm sorry. I'm just like so nervous to talk to you. I'm like nervous. Like he was clearly like much older than me. And it was just kind of funny. I was like, you would have, why on earth are you nervous? Like I'm just like, uh, another saxophone player that you didn't even know before you came here. You know, you didn't know me or this band or anything. Um, and so we were just talking for a little bit about saxophone and, you know, just getting to interact with some of the people. Um, yeah, it was just like a, a really, really cool experience. And one of those things where I, I just, I wish there were even more things like that happening in the city because now say, I don't know, I didn't really like count people, say there, there were 200 people there that's just not, I don't know how many people live in this city, right? Like 
maybe a million I have I, I have no idea but like you know there could be like 10 10 concerts like this around the city and it would not be oversaturation at all I think um, a lot of it just has to do with like we really just need more money pouring into the infrastructure of uh, of the city because these experiences are just amazing and I think like even for this series there were maybe only like six or eight performances uh, for like the whole season of the summer which is good but it's it's also like man you know if this is the only thing that uh, maybe somebody comes to it's it's kind of like man they're, they're really missing out on more chances um, there was where were we playing? I forget somewhere where this is one of those things I never really expect. But I was, we were just finished up a set somewhere we were playing and, and uh, people were asking us to, if we could keep playing longer. And it was one of those things where like the set was planned to be end, ended by a certain time. And so, you know, we couldn't go on. But I never really think that people will want to hear more, especially after like 90 minutes of music um, or however long our set was. But it always, maybe not always, but there's always, there seem to be people that will vocalize that and say like, oh, we, we actually want to hear more of this. You know, where can we get it? You know, or can you play longer tonight? Or like, when are you playing next? And I think part of that has to do with it's like, well, there aren't a ton of venues here. There there aren't a ton of opportunities, especially if you're thinking about all ages, um, audience members trying to come hear you. And there could absolutely be more going on. Um, and a lot of, you know, what it comes down to is funding, you know, especially when you're, um, yeah, I don't really, think of myself this way but if you get to be like a musician where you're gigging a lot you may think well I don't really want to do something unless it pays like fairly well or pays like a certain amount and that's the biggest drawback is is I don't even think necessarily venues because there are a good amount of like indoor and outdoor I actually think there are plenty of indoor and outdoor places that are great for concerts but you'll see places where it's like they do four concerts like all summer. And it's like, man, you know, I think if we worked more towards not necessarily the presentation, but like supporting the musicians to allow us to plan ahead and to get paid well. And a lot of that I think would just have to come from city funding because it's, I think it's a little bit too difficult to just sort of, sort of like do this or, you know, trying to get like sponsorships would just do this and sell tickets on our own. Then again, we're kind of stuck in that mode of like, well, I got to deal with all these admin things of like hiring the band, booking places, working on the music, doing soundcheck. Now you got to say, I got to sell tickets and get all of the, the crowd there on my own too. It's just like, I think it's just too much to take on. But thinking about 
you know, why, and I'm sure it just comes down to like finance, but it also comes down to like priorities. I mean, I know Indianapolis is a big sports and conference city, like a lot of inter or like national conferences, um, or international as well actually take place here because of the large conference center that we have downtown. And especially like the government's going to say, yeah, we want, uh, we need to give like a ton of support to the Pacers and Colts, which is fine. But it's like, man, if we could get 1% of the sports budget, the art scene would absolutely explode. <laughs> and that's that's just like a pure estimated statistic. That's not even looking at any sort of numbers that I just know based on what gigs pay and the the amount of gigs and especially if we're looking at like all these park series and jazz fest and the the zoo series like all these different things and just having an idea an idea of like uh the budgets that they all have and man it's just like usually it's it's pretty minimal and just thinking like, and it's it's difficult, right? Because it's like, well, um, especially when you're a musician, it's I think it's hard to have that perspective because we get so highly trained with like hearing music too, where it's like, you may think, I mean, if you're just like the casual listener and you just go hear somebody play an instrument, you may, you can just hear like, basically like a college age student who has no professional experience play and they'd be like, oh man, you were so amazing. And then you could hear like a 50 year old musician who's been playing their whole life. And you, a lot of times as a casual listener, you're not even gonna be able to notice the difference. So like realizing that, and it's hard for, if you're a musician, it's hard to actually have that perspective, but that's absolutely what happens is that the general public can't make a distinction between like okay or good or kind of okay and like really good or great where you know that's if so if like if you're in the government and you're like oh where are we going to spend our money on do they know that they have the option to like put together like a high-end modern jazz series of even just local people and make it like really like a special thing or they're just gonna put they're just like well we can just do this thing for like some generic cover band and we'll put them on the main stage because they're gonna play songs everybody knows like well okay there's something to that it's like yes people do like going to hear music they recognize I have nothing wrong with that but you look at cities like New York and take the Village Vanguard, for example, they have a very strict, I guess, policy for if you look at the people they hire, they're hiring the people that are on the cutting edge of modern jazz most of the time. People like Ambrose Ekinmusery or Aaron Parks or Eric Harland, Joe Lovano, like they're, they get like cream of the crop because they have an intelligent staff that is not just going to book like 
you know, they're obviously they're not going to book like a cover band, but they're not even going to book jazz players that are not quote unquote like uh, really searching for something new and special, which is like most of the almost all the people they book are I would put in that category. But then a, a city like India that maybe doesn't have a village vanguard, for example, or they don't really have anybody in power that would say, oh, this or these groups of musicians or we could put together this lineup of these bands and it would be like this really um, forward-thinking, modern thing where it's not just, they would rather just do, oh, we're just going to do a blues and barbecue fest and just get whatever. <laughs> now, there I'm not saying there aren't incredible blues blues musicians here in town. There absolutely are. I've played with, for one example, being Tad Robinson. He's amazing. He absolutely deserves to play a ton. He's great. Um, but what I'm getting at is just like the people that are more like in charge, that are making the decisions, people and people that are funding things, they don't have that critical ear. And it's just easier for them to just say, um, oh, yeah, Jazz Fest, that's that's cute we'll give you i mean i don't even think jazz fest is has any actual like government funding i mean i guess they have like arts council which i don't know if that's necessarily considered part of the the quote-unquote government but it's not like they're getting any sort of funding like the colts the pacers now I'm not saying they should get that same amount but like i said one give us one percent of the sports budget of the city and we could do wonders with the music scene. <laughs> I mean, it could just be like insane. Um, I think, yeah, I think, you know, and I do think it mostly comes down to financial backing because I know there are other people out there that think a lot of these same things and think like, oh, okay. Um, Jazz Fest struggles to have like three solid days where they get like really good turnouts. Okay, so um, it's like, we're just gonna do the minimum. We're just gonna do like a couple days and we're gonna have Robert Glasper where we know we'll bring, he'll bring in like a few hundred people and just like, that's gonna be it. And it gets challenging. Um, when I, I think I've had this idea where it's like, there's no there's not really a thing of like a middle-class jazz musician. And I don't really want to get into that too much right now because I think it's like a longer drawn out topic. Um, but that's an idea I've had that I've sort of just like thought about on and off over the, the past, I don't know how many years, but I think it's an interesting idea if, if you actually think about it. Um, but yeah, I'm, I have, I seem to have a tendency to be going on a lot of tangents today. I'm going to take another break here, um, grab some water and probably do a little practicing, but I'll be back in a little bit. All right, we are back. It is now the evening. Uh, I was planning on coming back and recording more earlier, but then I ended up getting caught up with some other things, so... Um, 
I don't quite remember where I left off. I know I was talking about various gigs that I was playing. I remember I was talking about the zoo gig. There was another gig that happened this this weekend, which was a definitely a one-of-a-kind experience. I was asked to play for an anniversary party for a couple, and it was on the rooftop of this uh, apartment building downtown. And I was playing solo saxophone for three and a half hours. And I have done some solo saxophone things before, nothing nearly that long. I was a little bit nervous that day about getting through it without like my body just giving out. But I ended up just like basically not practicing at all that day and then just doing like a little warm up before. And then I was pretty much okay. Um, I didn't even really take any breaks. I, I ended up just like bringing my saxophone stand and then the few times throughout, I would set my instrument down, get a drink of water, just take like a minute of rest and then pick my horn back up and continue playing. And that seemed to to help. Um, but it's funny, it's always hard to know like what the audience or the, it's not even really an audience because I was very much background music. No one, as far as I could really tell, was just sitting or standing there listening to me. Most people were mingling or in little groups or one-on-one -on -one conversations. And it's always strange to know or to try to figure out what people are thinking <laughs> or if they're even thinking about me at all. But, I mean, I think one thing that I was trying to do was not get too crazy but try to like play pretty melodically like I would I would just play like one standard for like 15 minutes but I would play the melody a few times and then I would just like play in a way that was more melodically outlining the changes and so not you know if I just go into like playing changes or playing eighth notes it might be a little odd as a, just solo saxophone for like a background music. So I tried to make it more melodic. Sometimes I would just like play a ballad for a while or if I would play like a medium tempo tune, I was just trying to play something that sounded like it was very clearly in a tempo in time to sort of uh, fake like the, you know, that intrinsic feeling of like, rhythm that you get with an actual band um and it was funny too like some people would just stand like right in front of me and choose to have their conversation right there <laughs> like there were a couple times when people would come and their back would be like a foot in front of my saxophone bell and i'm just like well for one you hear me playing and i was you know playing fairly soft just because there were a lot of people around and, and they were all like having conversations. I can bury conversations if I want to, <laughs> especially in, if I'm like in an indoor restaurant, even out in a situation that's outside like that. It's like, I can play loud enough where you won't be able to have a conversation if you're nearby. So I'm always very aware of that, especially if I'm in a restaurant or somewhere where I'm like, I start playing a little bit louder 
And then as soon as I stop playing, I can hear that the whole crowd has gotten louder, like their conversations have gotten louder. It's because the timbre of the instrument is very similar to the human voice. So it's like, it will just nullify the human voice. Um, and so, yeah, when somebody comes and stands right in front of me, it's kind of like, well, you know, you, you want to talk to somebody. Why come right in front of the musician that's making sound and it's going to make it more difficult to talk? So if they do that, then I just start playing even softer or I might just like stop. I would just stop and take like a another like a minute break or something until somebody moved. But it was just sort of funny. But man, the view was amazing. I mean, I could see like parts of the city from a whole new perspective where things that seem really big from the ground, you know, when you're looking down on them, it just like, it's, it's kind of crazy. And it wasn't even like we were in like a skyscraper. I mean, I don't know how many floors up we actually were. Um, I'm not sure I would need to check, but it was high enough where it felt like you could really see like the city in a, in a new way. And it was also the angle of it was we could watch like the entire sunset and like throughout the time of the party. And I did take a time-lapse video of it because I was like, oh man, this is going to be like the way I was facing. I was actually just facing the sun. I was kind of worried I was just going to like fry, but the, there were enough clouds where when it was going down, it wasn't, I only had full sun for maybe like 10 minutes or something. Um, but I got a decent time lapse where you, you, there are a lot of people that sort of come into, to block some of the cool moments, but you can still see like the, uh, the sun setting. And I think it's over the course of like two hours, the, the time lapse is, or maybe, well, yeah, I guess I must've taken it for about that long, but I've got a ton of video footage from various gigs and different things. I'm compiling a bunch of things and I want to start, um, making my YouTube vlogs again. You know, I really enjoyed that. And I enjoyed, uh, sort of like the challenge of just taking a specific activity, like going to a gig, setting up, playing the gig and just being able to like try to present that in like a cool way through different angles and through video editing. I think that's really fun. And it's, it's, um, I, I do think it's like a, a useful way of just sort of like getting myself out there and getting my plane out there. Um, but I've actually been thinking about wanting to go like even more full steam ahead with the YouTube stuff, because I know that, um, well, like along with the vlogs, I actually really enjoy making videos. Um, I really, I, I do like, and even when I'm doing like saxophone ones or semi-instructional ones, or at least like where I'm sharing something that I'm working on, I like thinking about how I can make it <clears throat> the most, um, I guess, effective or um, kind of like the most concise as well, but like the, just have like the quality really high, both with the plane and then what I'm saying about it. 
um, I, I sort of like that, the challenge of doing that really well. Um, what I, I've been thinking a lot about this and like for a while, I guess at the beginning of the year, I did try to get back into it a little bit and I was like, all right, I'm going to do two videos a week. And I did that for a few weeks. The hard thing about it is like, um, well, it's mainly, I think it's this idea of, well, I think it's a couple of things. One is like being your own boss uh, is in and of itself always going to be its own challenge because you're setting deadlines for yourself. You're giving yourself assignments and tasks and, and creating goals for yourself. And it's, and then you have to be your own manager and check in and say, okay, how's it going? And then you have to be the boss and say like, well, we got to work on this faster or this part has to be better or we just have to get it done sooner or whatever it is. Typically what happens then is like my musician side says, it's like, well, no, this isn't ready. I need more time to work on this. And then I'll work on it and I'll, that's always an endless, an endless thing. If you wait for it to be good enough, like the bar is always going to be higher, right? Because if something can't be perfect, if, if perfection doesn't exist, that's going to lead to never putting something out. So you have to sort of say, I like, I've heard it before, um, basically like when something is 80% done, and of course there's never a hard and fast 80%, but if you can sort of imagine in your mind what you think perfect would be, then you can say, okay, this is 80%, boom, I'm done, release it, move on to the next thing. What I really want to try to do is um, see if it's possible to, to actually release one YouTube video a day and make it um, not just like a really kind of quick an easy throwaway video, but actually make it of good quality. And what I'm thinking is, so I started that series uh, and I have the, I guess, um, I forget what you would call it. The, oh, the playlist, the playlist on my YouTube channel of, um, <clears throat> is called The Practice Room. Or, or maybe it's Sean's, I think it's maybe Sean's Practice Room or something. I was thinking about uh, trying to make that the core of it and just putting out videos like, and I'm sort of thinking 10 minutes max, maybe trying to get each one at least five minutes. So maybe around five to 10 minutes per video where I'm demonstrating the things that I'm actually working on, talking about it a little bit, sharing maybe if there's like a PDF or something and, and sharing that on the email list. Um, when I was doing, I did that long series, uh, I think it was just called saxophone shed where those were quicker, more like, I forget what they were now, like two to three minute videos, you know, more designed for like Instagram con consumption, but I was posting them on YouTube as well. And when I did that, I was, I was spending a good amount of time, but I was also creating PDFs for every single one. And than sharing those um, like every Friday on my email list. That I think it was a little overboard, although I did get tons of people signed up to the email list when I was doing that. Um, I think what I would like to do is 
make the videos a little bit more in depth than what I was doing then. I mean, then what I was doing was basically, I would just play like a little quick lick and then explain what it was very quickly. And I think, yeah, maybe they were, maybe I had a limit of like two minutes on each of those videos. That's kind of, I, I think it's cool, but I, what I would like to do is um, actually see if I can make the quality better, but then also try to try to go a, a little bit more in depth each time. Like I don't want it to be just a quick fix or like a quick hit of like content. Uh, you know, I want it to be something more of like you know. I'm I'm always practicing a, a ton of different things, and I think it's just really can and can be really useful and hopefully inspiring to people that are also trying to learn and get better um, to share a little bit more. And I, you know, a lot of times I imagine like, man, if Chris Potter, Joe Lovano, Robbie Coltrane, Mark Turner, Donnie McCaslin, any of those, those guys did something like this on YouTube, I would act absolutely be right there for every second of it, watching every one. Um, because I think it for two main reasons. One, it's just, it'd be really inspiring um, to get a glimpse at, at their process, but also it would be educational. And even if I didn't necessarily want to work on every specific thing, I there's always gonna be something in there that I'm like, ooh, I really wanna get into this, or this is something I was curious about with their playing, and this is really sort of like pulling back the curtain on a lot of their concepts. And it could really be anything. I mean, it wouldn't even have to be saxophone specific. It just talk about like how they go about releasing albums. And of course, all those guys have other people to do all that stuff for them. I'm sure they have managers and teams that book tours and, you know, do all of that. But the thing is, like, I think there's always someone that wants to learn from someone else, even if you're just a high school player and, you know, but just imagine you've got maybe like four years of experience on middle school students. That's a lot of um, time and knowledge um, that even like somebody like that could could learn from. And so thinking about myself, you know, I know that there are a lot of people that are interested in that. And even when I was releasing those videos early this earlier this year, they were getting decent views on YouTube. I think maybe some of them got 400 views, which I think I'm only at like 1700 followers on YouTube right now. I would love to try to grow that more, but not in a way where it's sort of just like cheap content or how I think about, um, like I don't want to make content for everybody or even like every saxophone player, you know, like um, there are some channels where they where they will talk about like, oh, um, I'm gonna like buy the cheapest alto saxophone on Amazon and this is what it sounds like. Can you believe it? Can you believe it's this cheap? <laughs> you know, like content like that, I see the entertainment value, um, but that's not really what I wanna, I don't wanna be like just an entertainer. And 
hope that doesn't come off as too like egotistical because obviously in, to some degree that's that is what I am um although I I do think I would be doing some type of art even if I knew I was never going to have an audience just because I naturally have that desire to I do also want to be able to play and present things to people so I I do think there's an element of entertainment in that however you define that but yeah I mean I, I I know I could make videos like that if I wanted to or like um what you know just like basically like clickbaity type of things where you'll get the broad spectrum like you will get beginners you'll get hobbyists you'll get basically any type of person that has ever played that instrument to to maybe be interested in it that's not exactly what i want i think what i want is more uh people that are maybe a, a little more serious about playing but also people that really want to learn and feel like they would want to know more in information about somebody like myself or my process or things that I work on or how I improve or some advice as well. But um, I think like more like conceptual things and a, a definitely like sharing the practice process. Um, there is a trombone player named Christian Lindbergh who I discovered on YouTube who I wasn't aware of before, but I guess my feed just must have recommended one of his videos at some point. And so I started watching some of them and I was blown away. For one, he's like a world-class trombone player. He solos with orchestras and also conducts and also composes. And he would do some like very polished, highly edited videos of like his routine or just um, showing different things. But then there was a series he did where I think it was for like two or three weeks every day he was posting like maybe a 10-ish or less minute video of him working on this one specific piece that he was getting ready to record and I absolutely loved it you know and it was like a classical piece I think it may be a Bach thing but he's playing trombone so you know he's got that um, technical level where it's like really challenging but he's just sort of sort of demonstrating playing little passages and then talking a little bit about what he's thinking about and just showing himself getting reps in on on parts of the piece and it was fascinating because you know because he was posting frequently you could really get in and and um, witness the progress and the improvement um, and I notice too you know this is just sort of like a side note and this isn't really the goal although it's nice the views on those videos that he was getting versus some of his other ones where he's doing like interviews or, or maybe like not trombone specific were far and above his other videos and it was the, it was like man this is like such an interesting thing that I think you know a lot of people that are aware are starting to um, not exactly take advantage of, but just um, under understanding the power of the power that you have and the um, 
the opportunity the opportunity that you have when you can just like go directly to either your fans or your students or whatever it is with no middleman so you know he's i would i guess one of the top trombone players in the world i'd be curious to talk to some actual like trombone player friends of mine to know because you know i don't really know um but the fact that you know he's going around playing with orchestras and also conducting and and people play his pieces you know he's on a high level essentially you know just imagine uh yeah like i was saying like one of the top jazz saxophone players if if one of those people were actually doing something like this and just, and just saying like all right i'm going to practice a specific tune over the next two or three weeks and each day i'm going to share where i'm at in the progress or, or the, the process and talk through it and then play some and demonstrate and, and show you how it's getting better um i i think you know a lot of times we maybe underestimate the ability of the audience to learn from something like that or grasp concepts because in like a school setting you know even if you're in like a university say you're in a class that meets three times a week um well say that the class is like an hour for three times a week and it's just like a lecture that's a a lot of information that's being given and i would argue that a lot of times it's too much information and even if we back up into high school like man i knew by like my sophomore year that i wanted to try to get into playing jazz on on not just the highest level that i could at that point there should have been an option to say okay you don't need to take math you you need a teacher in for improvisation you need to do this 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 and this and if that's why i you know i like working with people that are at that stage not even necessarily in high school but you know you can be at that stage when you're 25 30 years old too or even older but that's the sort of thing it's like we're going to jam pack all of this stuff into your high school and college career that you know you're not interested in at all based on this idea of being well-rounded well i i'm here to say being well-rounded is overrated <laughs> because what being well-rounded means is that now at my age i probably couldn't even get through my freshman final of spanish and i took spanish I think all four years of high school and I, I'm sure I would most likely fail the final of the first year that I took that language. Um, I don't even really think that's much of an exaggeration. I, I'm, you know, and, or even thinking about like getting through a math class or an English class. It's like, yeah, I could fake a, a lot of it probably, but man, do I think I'm well-rounded? You know, I was just, I just went to this, there was like a community theater that put on, I had a friend doing this play and they did a version of Midsummer Night's Dream. 
And it was kind of interesting because I was, during that, I was having flashbacks to my high school English class where we read that um, play. And so I already basically knew the plot, which is kind of cool because then you can just sort of like see how they're reinterpreting it. I mean, based on whatever foggy memory I have of it. Um, Yes, I mean, it's good to know little factual things like that. However, I think it's way over the top in terms of requirements. And even in college, man, I mean, I think it's changed somewhat, but like the undergrad curriculum at IU for jazz studies majors was like, man, so heavy on theory and history in ways that were not helpful for making us the best improvisers that we could be. Um, Now, I'm not saying that you should get away or, or do away with all history, but man, it was like over the top how difficult it was. It was essentially like, remember some of those tests were like, it would be like six hours of classical music and they would just play drop the needle and on that much. And I had never listened to any of that before. Just crazy stuff like that where it's like, man, this is like, yes, I want to get into this stuff. It needs to be smaller doses. It needs to be more manageable. Um, and it's it's just like way too much. And um, yeah, where was I coming from with this? Well, I guess I was talking about, um, yeah, early on in high school, like a lot of people already know what they want to do. You should have the option to make a more personalized path for yourself rather than just saying, oh, we need you to get this many credits in all of these STEM courses, even though you're clearly an artistic, artistically minded person. Um, um, and yeah, they, of, of course they have performing arts high schools, but you know, if you don't know that early enough on, I feel like a lot of people get stuck into that public school route where we're going to cram every topic down your throat to try to make you well-rounded or to help you discover the thing that you're really into. Um, but I think, I think it's a pretty clear earlier on where people's passion lies. I've got this one student. Um, I don't, I'm not really taking many, um, in-person students now, but I've got one cause I've had him for years now. He's about to start 11th grade and he's just now getting into transcription and he just learned the first two courses of the Sonny Rollins solo on St. Thomas and he can play it along with the recording. And I'm like, man, like this is the, this is the ticket for you. Like you're clearly passionate about this. If you want to pursue this, keep transcribing. We're going to keep learning tunes. We're going to figure out how to play over changes. And like, this is the stuff for you. Um, and if it could be even a thing where, you know, he has like, and I haven't really talked to him about like, what are your other interests? You know, what, what other passions do you have? Things that you really, you, you know, you're ex- really excited to go to a specific class. I think that's one of the key giveaways where it's like, if you're always dreading 
period three, which is pre-calculus, you're not going to be an engineer, right? I mean, of course, there are like, um, there are cases where that's maybe not true, right? It could just be like, well, the light light bulb just comes on in, in like the middle of calculus or trigonometry or something, and all of a sudden, like, yeah, I mean, yeah, sure, that happens, but man, by like forcing people into chemistry and all of these classes where it's like, man, if you're not analytically minded, it's just miserable and you're just struggling and to just force yourself to do the assignments. There's no passion there. You're just like getting through it. Um, now, there are, I had friends in high school that were just like naturally incredibly smart and they could just go to like the hardest classes, just sit there, not, never really study, just like absorb it all in class, go bust through the assignment and boom, it was fine. And those are the people that graduated top of the class and ended up in like Ivy League schools and things like that. That was not me. I was not naturally smart in like every subject. I was hardly naturally smart in any subject, but obviously music was one of them. And that was the thing I was passionate about. If you're, if you have natural ability with something and you like it and you're in the ninth grade, that's what you should be spending half of your day on that. I'm just going to go out on a limb. I don't even know if that's really going out on a limb, but like if you are into uh, dance, you're in ninth grade, you dance in every, every group, every like opportunity, every concert, you're even dancing outside of school and other groups, you're writing your own dances, you put together your own dance troupe. And let's just choose a subject, uh, biology. When it comes to biology, you just dread that class. You, you hate having to memorize a bunch of different species and you can't stand dissecting things. And it only takes you one semester of science like that to understand, listen, this isn't my thing. I am, I can go, I can, there needs to be like an alternative, but just forcing people to like do massive amounts of work in these subjects that they not necessarily despise, but just like do not look forward to and then trying to just cram everybody's cramming for these finals because you haven't really studied throughout the semester it's just a man it's a bad system in the meantime you're just like spending all of your time that you would rather be dancing and you've got like unlimited energy for that you have to then set it aside to like dissect a frog <laughs> now i'm not saying you know there shouldn't be any general education. I'm just saying, how could we make it way, way less? Like, what if you had one science class a day instead of like, you know, assuming you're not on block scheduling. Like when I was in high school, we had every class every day. What if instead of that, you had one 145 minute science class a day if you know that's not your thing. Now, if you're the kid that's like, kind of into math and science, and even, even if you're not specifically sure which one you wanna do, well, great. You can have one 45 minute music class a week where at the end of your high school career, you'll still have an appreciation for it. 
you'll still want to go to concerts and support music and keep the arts alive. Excellent. The kids that were the dancers, then at the end of their high school career, they will still have a basic knowledge of science, but it won't be like killing them to just try to like learn enough for these finals and just like force feeding this information that they're not that interested in during that whole time. Um, yeah, so that's a lot. I mean, man, I, I think it would actually be really cool to talk to, you know, people higher up in the education system. Like, and I know it's very much like not even necessarily political, but it's, it's almost like its own government where like the superintendent of a school system, he's just trying to like keep the balls in the air, he or she. They're just trying to make the school work, right? Make sure teachers are in the classrooms, make sure the kids are getting to school. Like they, they can't try to upend the system with th- thinking about things like this. And this is why it's so hard. And this is why so much of it doesn't work because all of this stuff is set in stone and it's just force feeding material that people aren't interested in. And we wonder then why so many people are displeased with the job they end up having as adults later on in life. And it's like, hello, we ignored your passions early on. And we told you, no, you've got to do this specific thing to just make money, to buy yourself a house and cars and food. And we didn't prioritize for what you're naturally good at or discover your talents or help you figure out what your talents are or your passions and allow you to spend time and build up the skills that you need to actually get good enough at that thing to be able to do it once you're in the real world. Um, But rather it's like, oh, how many AP tests or how many AP classes can we take? Um, And, you know, and of course like, I think we do, we want the option of, of the students that, you know, if, there's always going to be a lot of people that are undecided, even once they graduate high school. Um, but I think that's, that can be one of the jobs of counselors. Man, I think I, when I was in high school, I met with my counselors like twice the whole time. And one was like, I would show up. They're like, okay, well, where are you applying for college? <laughs> like, uh, I don't know. And then it was, man, I don't even remember having another one after that. But I, I was just like, man, why can't their job be more like talking after like freshman year of high school and be like, okay, what do you, what classes do you love? What classes do you hate? Listen, if you hate biology, it doesn't make sense to continue you in science classes for the next three years you can take like I don't know it should there should be some other option of like what I'm talking about like once a week you can take science so so you learn enough basics and practical material where if you come across a topic that may spark interest then we can lead you to oh yeah you might like these books which you can read on your own time if you choose to just like the kid that's really passionate about dance They can create their own groups out of school if they choose to. And the ones that are really into it do do that. You can, you have that freedom, but we're not going to force you to spend 
six hours a week to do biology homework um, just to get a high enough GPA so that when you graduate here, you can go on to some college or you're going to accrue a ton of debt. <laughs> I, I'm not intentionally or even, I, I think this is a, actually a fairly honest, realistic conversation. I don't even really think this is that negative. That I'm not intentionally trying to be dark on the situation, I, but I think it's very useful to be critical um, because in a lot of ways, I, I, I do think the system is like pretty messed up. And even if we're just looking at the fact that most people are just doing jobs just to pay the bills and people have such a difficult time figuring out how to be able to do things that they love and make their life just, um, I guess, just like a, a more joyous, magical experience that every morning I just like can't wait to, <laughs> you know, live every day. And most people are just like, like the saying goes, working for the weekend. And it's because I think early on people were just like steered in the wrong direction and not given, given the support or the help that they needed to help um, get on the path to do something that they actually like or give them at least a chance of that. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm trying to remember now where this tangent actually started to see if I could get back on track. Um, I think I'm too far, too far gone from it now. Uh, but I may, I may wrap this, this episode up, um, for today. I, I think what I may try to do is just set aside one episode to do a bunch of questions because I know I have a few that I'd like to answer, but my voice is a little tired now. And, um, so I think I may, I may wait on that. If you have anything that you would like to contribute, or if you have any thoughts related to anything I've discussed in this episode or previous episodes, feel free to email me at saxophonejournal at gmail.com and uh, we can be friends via the internet. All right, until next time, take care. <laughs>